Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. I would like to sort of be a symbol to other people to say, like, there's nothing to be afraid of. And I think women should be able to have just as many rights as men when it comes to their sexuality. Hi, and welcome to the second episode of Varit International with me, your host, Christopher Triumph. Last week's premiere with author Joe Nespo seems to have found its way outside the Swedish border, and that's awesome. If you'd like to email us, please do. It's pod at varvetpod.com. So, guest this week is Sasha Gray, author, actress, etc. But first, let me tell you about the Varvet International sponsor. Airbnb.com is a fantastic website and a community for people on the move. Either you'd like to rent out your house, an apartment or a room, or if you're about to go traveling and need a place to stay, Airbnb is the alternative for this. And the fact that most homes on the Airbnb website have pictures taken by professional photographers makes surfing there well alluring to say the least. So, please, listener, go check that out. That's airbnb.com. And Airbnb, thanks a lot for sponsoring the show. So, my guest in this episode of Varvet International is American celebrity Sasha Gray. She has two and a half million fans on Facebook and almost 800,000 followers on Twitter. How did she get so famous? Well, just as she turned 18, she started working as a porn actress and soon became one of the adult entertainment business's biggest stars and has also been sort of a spokesperson for what she sees as the good side of that industry. However, after just a few years, she left the business and she'll soon tell us why. She has also starred in traditional movies and TV. For example, she played the lead role in Steven Soderbergh's The Girlfriend Experience and also acted in HBO's Entourage, playing Vincent Chase's girlfriend. Her first novel, The Juliet Society, came out last year in the US. It's a story about Catherine, a film student who finds a new friend in class. Anna. And Anna shows Catherine the ropes in a world where sexual fantasies are turned into reality. Sort of. And Sasha also has a music career going on. She seems to be a jack of many trades. So, let's roll the tape, ladies and gentlemen. Sasha Gray. Could you describe the settings for us? Well, there's a really cool Andreas Gursky photograph behind us the nine, the infamous 99 cent store photo if any of you guys know what that is there's another painting behind you which i don't really like so much it's a bir- <laughs> two, it's a birch two tree birch trees yeah <laughs> what neighborhood are we in we are in west hollywood in la in mm. los angeles but this is like the tail end of west hollywood going into hollywood i think It sounded like I didn't know where we are, but I am actually the one who rented this place. So I should, <laughs> so I should know, but I'm not. I, I wasn't sure about the neighborhood thing because this is Larchmont, I think. Okay. I'm not sure that if that's a real neighborhood or how it is. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I yeah. think there's a lot of families over here. We've seen one kid since we came oh, here. Oh well, then yeah. maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> Uh, clearly, I don't spend much time over here. No, everybody in this block is uh, seem to be like artists or oh, okay. yeah, working out a lot. Anyway, <laughs> how how has your day been so far? Good, good, easy. What easy do you do? Day. I'm actually working on the second book for the Juliet Society, the oh, sequel. Okay. Yeah, and um, I'm working on new new music. 
I have a few new music projects coming up. I've been DJing the last few years, and so I'm actually getting into producing some original tracks. So it's kind of been occupying my time these last few weeks. I'm learning digital recording and teaching myself some new things. So it's exciting and frustrating all at the same time. I wasn't aware until now about the music part of your career, but that's something that has evolved over years. Yeah, I used to have a little band. It was experimental, ambient noise, I guess you could call it. We were really influenced by Coil and Throbbing Gristle, Chris and Cozy, KMFDM, Skinny Puppy bands like that. We released a few albums with Deus Records and Pendu Sound, which are New York, both New York-based labels. But we did really limited runs, mostly just on vinyl, and then finally just put all our catalog onto iTunes after waiting for a very long time. But I'm no longer in that band, and uh, because I was simultaneously DJing while I was in that band, now I'm focusing more on possibly producing some dance tracks. And it's something new for me. That's it's completely different from what I was doing before. But you know, once you've kind of done the run and DJed a bunch, and you're not making new music, it's kind of hard to continue that unless you have some sort of gimmick. And I don't really want to play on a gimmick. When DJing, you're playing other people's music. Of oh, course. of course, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, like everybody. So the plan is to write. Is it called EDM? It is. Yeah. <laughs> But there's all there's EDM. There's I, I was having this conversation with a friend of mine who's kind of teaching me the ropes, because like I said, digital recording is something very new for me. And so he was showing me how he records, what his process is like. His name's Les Mord. He makes ambient music, dark ambient. But he's very well versed in other music. He loves dub. You know, he he he's very well educated in that respect. And so we were having this conversation like house, deep house, EDM. You know, it's these terms all exist for a reason or minimal but for most people most of the audience it's all kind of one and the same with a few variations in between so we were just having a good laugh at that and but are you working in um, pro tools or no i'm going to work in logic yeah okay yeah like i said this is all the recording process and digital recording is so new for me pro tools just seems i don't have time for that i want to i just want to get in and get my hands dirty and mess up a lot, fuck up a lot, and then keep, you know, continue and, and learn from my mistakes. And Pro Tools is uh, is a little above that and, and maybe one day in the near future, but I don't think I need all that. I want to kind of keep it simple and stick to the basics for now. I've been looking into both, but uh, I would say that, uh, yeah, maybe Pro Tools is a little bit harder to understand. <laughs> Once you get going, it seems to be sort of the same thing, but the thresholds are really high. Exactly. Yeah. Have you learned about busing? No, no. No. I mean, this is all brand new. I'm setting up everything tail end of last week and this week. So, Hence the question about some kind of... I read your tweets. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking... Well, because I, like I said, I DJ. So I'm used to sliding faders and twisting knobs. And I like that tactile feeling. And I have an old synth, an ARP Odyssey mk2 and that's something that i'm familiar with so these things these tactile things where you're able to kind of feel what you're doing that's important for me so when i when my friend was going over logic with me and showing me different plugins and the digital oscillator i'm like ah this is so strange to me but all you know everybody i know who makes music is doing this and this is the way everybody is working and it's just it is a future and it's here to stay so that being said i still want something to be able to manually control that's not with the computer mouse because I would go nuts. So what minutes. was the thing that you asked about? I was looking for a, a controller, basically. Okay. A MIDI controller. But that's not, you know, not just a keyboard, not just a controller to play sounds, but a controller to manipulate the oscillators that you would see on your computer. So I got a lot of feedback. People, <laughs> Some people said, yeah, it's great. It's perfect. Other people said, no, Behringer sucks. <laughs> so... But it's a fun world to play around in because there, there's so much stuff also on YouTube where you can. I've been trying to learn the the Skrillex drop, <laughs> but it's. Uh, I mean, and there's like 25 tutorials on on YouTube with just that those words. Learn Skrillex drop. But why do you want to learn Skrillex drop? Uh, I don't just, know. I just want to figure out how it how just it's for done. Fun. Yeah. Okay. okay. Maybe that's a little bit old now to learn, but... It's okay. Yeah. Whatever inspires you. 
Well, no I judging. Have, you are a little bit ju- judging. <laughs> I, I can feel that. Hey, I like Skrillex. I'm not judging. Okay, cool. <laughs> but uh, yeah, because when we read up on you, it seems like you have, I mean, music has been important to you all along. Yes. So this is a natural step for you in a way. Oh, definitely. A lot of the people that I'm influenced by weren't trained musicians, but I don't think, you know, just because you don't know how to pick up a guitar and, and wail like Hendrix doesn't mean you can't go and make music. And so I've always been inspired by people like that who just kind of have a a do-it attitude, you know, do-it-yourself attitude. Just get in there and, and make something and, and figure it out along the way. Are you like staying up all night and just experimenting? Some days, yes. Yeah. It just depends. I'm trying sort of hard to have to focus on a book and then also teach yourself something completely new. So I'm trying to divide my time equally. So it's not always easy, but it's fun. And staying up all night, no. But late, yes. <laughs> but I was curious about that because you seem like a really hard worker in a way. I think that's what gets me along. Yeah. I think we all have our bad days. I'm not perfect by any means, but driven, yes. Yeah, because when I read your book and also I've listened to a few other interviews with you, it seems like you have read all the books, you've seen all the movies, you've heard all the music in a way. I mean, how? I don't think I have, and I think that's actually one of my uh, one of my anxieties is not being able to see every movie. And I know that sounds really weird, but I had a conversation with my friend who's a journalist and um, he said the same thing about reading books. He goes, you know, his wife was telling me, oh my God, he brings six books, books, not, not, in, not a tablet to read. He brings six real books, seven, sometimes 10 books with him when they go on vacation or when they're traveling for work. And it's this anxiety that like, I'm never going to know it all. <laughs> so like, oh, I have to finish. I have to do this. And I mean, there was a point with, with movies where I was like bringing DVDs on the plane with me, even though there's on most planes now, you know, you have the option to watch movies. It's like, no, it's not. That's not enough. I have to bring like what I want to see. So no, I don't think so. But I, it is a fear of mine. I yeah. But you must read a hell of a lot. Or... Not so much these days, not as much as I would like to. Like most of the reading I do is for research. I sort of pick a few things and and read around read about different authors or writers that inspire me especially for this book now because i knew going into the juliet society i did want to write a trilogy i didn't really say that to anybody but that's what i felt i wanted to do and what was right especially for this story it couldn't really be told all in one book unless it was a saga and i didn't really want that for my first go around <laughs> So um yeah most of most of my reading is based on research these days. I would guess that you I mean music and writing is both on the same computer, right? So distraction is never far. Away. That is true, but I just I just invested in a second computer, so Okay. Now <laughs> now they can be separate, which is probably a good thing. Are you being able to focus when when you're writing? Yeah, but I also, I tend to write a lot of things freehand anyways, which is better because then you shut the computer off and, and go away. Because, oh, you write by hand? Yeah, not always, but sometimes, yeah. Okay. Makes it makes it easier. Do you have an outline? Now for the second book, I do, yes. Yeah. I actually just turned in my proposal to some publishers. Ah, so. uh-huh, okay. Yeah. So it's done. Not the book, but but the outline, yeah, okay. the rough sketch, to kind of say to people, this is what I want the next book to be, and hopefully you like it, like you liked the first one. But it's not going to be with the same publisher that the first one. I cannot say that yet. Okay. I'm not sure. All right. But yeah, in, in the literary world, it's always ideal to have the same publisher. So I think with um with the major ones, yeah, hopefully. We'll see. But the the first one must have sold pretty well, right? It did. It did. Did great everywhere but America. It did okay in the UK. Not as great as we would have hoped, but I also think that the way some of the things were done, the release was a little bit strange. So it came out in the UK in May of last year, and it didn't come out in the States and most of Europe and South America until August. So there's this really long delay 
between the release date of the book and, and all these different countries. And so I think that kind of confused some people, confused the market a little bit. All things that I never had to think about before <laughs> that I'm now learning. So now next time going into it, if I'm lucky enough to have the same publishers interested again, I can go into it much more aware of how this process works. And so, yeah, in the UK, it was, um, I think a lot of people thought it was going to be the next Fifty Shades of Grey, which is never what I intended it to be. But I think it really confused a lot of people. And, and again, that's just something that kind of happened along the way that none of us really stepped back and looked at and said, well, this is wrong. Because sometimes you you can't control what the press says, what journalists want to say necessarily, but it kind of just happened and we had to go with it. And I know based on reviews, some people were like, what the hell is this? This isn't what I thought I was buying. But conversely, it worked really well with the younger generations. I haven't read The Fifty Shades of Grey, but it's, I mean, if they thought it would be like that, and then read and read your book, I can't see why they sh- would be disappointed. Fifty Shades of Grey is like a... Tutorial is maybe the wrong word, but it's kind of like a play-by-play of BDSM for people who've never heard about BDSM. So it's very exciting, and it's, and it's shocking because you don't even know these things exist necessarily. My book is more informed and experienced, yeah. I guess you could say. Yeah. <laughs> so people, obviously people that know me aren't going to buy my book and think it's exciting and fresh. And I mean, I hope, I hope it is, but they're not going to see it as something that's completely um, innocent, I guess, in that way. But I did want to make Catherine as a character innocent because it's, it's quite frustrating when I read a story or see a film where from night to day a character just suddenly can accept everything about their sexuality you know like human sexuality and especially the sexuality of a young female is very complicated (laughs) it's not black and white and so it was important to have her react and soak everything in and respond and figure things out for herself and not just be led by somebody else necessarily or accept everything just because her best friend accepts everything. You know, she has to figure it out on her own, even if she, in this case, sees herself in a young woman like Anna, who is very liberated and free on on the surface. Will Catherine be in the second book as well? Oh, yes, definitely. So for the second and third books, we will be continuing Catherine's journey, following her. It quite recently came out in Sweden, I think, where I come from. When it comes to reviews, do you like Google Translate, the Swedish reviews? Sometimes I will, yeah. yeah. Especially because this is my first book. It's exciting. I want to see what other people think. And Well, this is like a perfect example. In the US and the UK, it was a little bit strange. And then in other countries, people are eating it up and they love it. So it's really interesting and fascinating to see that contrast. And it doesn't feel, if I'm acting in something, I don't like to read the reviews because it feels so much more personal. But with this, I feel a little bit more guarded, I guess you could say. I feel like I'm more protected. That's strange. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Because, I mean, when you're acting, it's actually someone else's words and and stuff. But this is all you. Yeah, which is why it was so exciting, too, because it's the first time I basically get to direct my own story. You know, I have complete control from beginning to end as long as my editors like it. (laughs) But how can you feel more protected in that? It's a strange thing. I don't know. It's just a, it's an, an emotion, a feeling. Like when you're acting, it, it is a very emotional thing. So you give so much of yourself. And I think when you're giving a good performance, you have to be vulnerable. We're all human. We all have insecurities. So I don't really want to read what other people have to say about my performance where I'm putting all of myself out there. With writing, even though it's mine from beginning to end, I just feel a little bit more shielded, a little bit more comfort. Yeah, it's in, weird. It doesn't really make sense. <laughs> it's just... But I guess with the same, it's the same with music. Like I don't, I don't mind reading reviews about the things I make when it comes to music. It doesn't bother me as much. You said that uh, for the second book, you're gonna not make the same mistakes that you did with the first one. Could you tell me what mistakes that was? Well, in that respect, I was talking more about the publicity and the way it was perceived. And of course, you can never control everything a hundred percent. But at least this time, I know. You know, when people are sending out requests for interviews, 
maybe I can say, hey, this is what I would like to go out so people have an understanding that like, this is what the book's about. It's not about trying to be somebody else's novel. It's about being this. And maybe, like in, in the f- case of the first book, I was really inspired by classic erotica. And so that was important for me to like let people know. You know, I, I kind of want to take it back, but also freshen it up and make it more contemporary. And of course, with writing what what mistakes I made, the process was so fast last time that, yeah, there was things along the way that I wish I would have done differently maybe. But at the same time, I kind of liked the pressure of having to deliver and having a timeline and, and knowing like, oh, okay, that's it. <laughs> Once it's in, it's in. And there's nothing else I can do unless my editor comes back and says, I hate this, change everything and, you know, start from scratch. That would be a different story. I've been thinking about that lately because these days, if people read like their books on an iPad or so, you could actually change it once it's done. And same, How do you mean? Because they can just download it again? <laughs> no, yeah. Maybe you could put out another edit mm-hmm. or a third edit or fourth and so forth. There's no actual need for a song or a film or anything anymore to be static. A continuation of the same theme. It's an interesting concept, actually. I think we should collaborate on something. Yeah. And we'll call it our drop. Our drop. Our drop, yes. Okay. Not the Skrillex drop. No, no, no. Okay. No, but that is interesting. And with the Juliet Society, actually, I turned my first draft in, or the final draft, rather, into the UK months before I did to the US. So, yeah, there was things that I added and kind of switched around. Nothing major, nothing that changed the story. But, yeah, I did fix things along the way since I had an extra two or three months. I'm curious about American authors being published in the UK. Is it translated? The words are different. I mean, yeah. they're spelled differently. Exactly. You know, but the euphemisms and things like that are still... I kept them in American English. But of course, the words are spelled differently. Yeah, yeah. So, so someone does that for you Yeah. along the way. Yeah. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. You've gotten to tour the world with this book. Yes, actually. And it's funny, we're, t- we're talking about different edits and translations. I was, uh, was on tour almost... Felt like almost all of last year from, from April onward off and on until December. And I was in Budapest. We did a reading at a cafe with my translator. And something that, uh, I think it was the publicist in Germany kind of recommended while I was in Germany. She said, well, a lot of Germans can speak English, but they don't like to because they're embarrassed. So why don't you read a section in English and then we'll have the woman who's interviewing you and the woman who did your audiobook in German, like, take turns reading in German. So I said, okay, that's good. And it actually worked really well. So I did the same thing in Budapest. But while I was reading the book or reading a section of this chapter, I was kind of also eyeing the Hungarian version of the book at the same time while I had my pages. And I realized one of the film references was missing from the Hungarian version. I think it was um, Tulane Blacktop was missing. And I meant to ask about that, but it kind of slipped my mind until now. So I was curious, like, what's removed from different editions let's hope that the hungarian editor listened to this then yes yeah. i hope you're listening but uh, how was the readers reactions over the world for the most part i feel like the response was really positive around the world i heard an interview with you where you said that russian people had come up to you and said that you changed their lives mm-hmm. how That happened in Brazil a lot too, actually. But yeah, in Russia, I was in Russia for, I think, 17 days last year, more or less. And I really think there's going to be, I mean, (laughs) there is now, but in more of a a youth-centric way, I think there's going to be a huge revolution in Russia in, in the coming decades. People are so repressed. I mean, we talk about Americans being repressed and hating on James Fry. (laughs) Like, Try going to Russia. So it's a lot different and... I feel like visiting, you know, I visited universities and I and I spoke to a lot of people my age and a little bit younger and, and there's a lot they want to say. And Russia has such a rich history that it's almost a contradiction within itself. Like we've done all of these great things and now we're kind of stuck in one place. And so I think they look up to me as somebody that, you know, you know I become a, a symbol for them to kind of stand up for what they want to do or their beliefs, whether it's artistically or sexually. Would it be possible to make a movie out of the Juliet Society? 
it's an idea. I had optioned it to Fox before I even finished writing it, actually. But that option is up now. So I can take it somewhere else. But if it happens, it's great. It's a cherry on top. But I'm... Actually, I should kind of step back a second. One of the biggest reasons I I wanted to write this book is because I was writing screenplays with my mentor, Anthony Dewan, for six years. And, you know, I've been in L.A. for eight years. So for the past six and a half, seven years, I've been trying to push our screenplays and get them out there and, you know, either sell them outright or find financing for these films and act in them, have him direct them, have a friend direct them. And I just kept hitting a brick wall. And a couple years ago, I was at the Cannes Film Festival, and I had this really wonderful script that I wanted to get financing for, and I wanted to act in it. And I felt like I had a few really great meetings, but overall, I was just kind of disappointed because it felt like a party, which a lot of it is. But it was the first time I had been to a film festival or any kind of festival as just a businesswoman, not as, you know, the talent presenting a film or a project or a book or something like that. So it's the first time I had really gone out there and, and tried to do something like this internationally. I'd, like I said, I'd been doing it in L.A. for years at that point. So I was a little disheartened. I was upset. I was frustrated. And I don't like having my time wasted. Life's too short. And I would rather somebody be honest with me and just say, no. Yeah. <laughs> don't say, this is great. Oh, my God. I can see myself in this. I can relate to this so much. I think people will cut the bullshit. Just tell me how it is. I can handle it. And so I was um, sitting outside. I was staying at a a huge house with a bunch of friends. And this is the other thing. It was my first time to Cannes. Not my first time to France, but my first time to Cannes. And I thought like, oh, okay, even if it goes bad, at least I'll have like the sun and the sea to like chill and relax and look at. It rained the entire time. So it was just like, okay, the weather's also a metaphor for how I'm feeling right now. I'm like sitting outside. It's overcast. And it's just like a reflection of, of my emotions at that moment. And I was thinking, okay, well, what else can I do? And I, I started thinking about this book. And um, a lot of my female fans for years had asked me to write something. And I said, oh, I like you. I like what you stand for. I also have the same sexual interests as you. But I don't really watch that much porn. And when I do, it's yours. Things like that. So it was an idea I had or was inspired by other people for quite a long time to do. And I, I just started um, writing the book then. And I, I read Fifty Shades of Grey because a lot of people kept talking to me about it and saying, oh my God, did you have something to do with this? No. Even my own mother like picked up the Wall Street Journal and, and saw the title of the book and then realized, oh no, this isn't you. Okay, <laughs> never mind. But you should get royalties. I know, right? Yeah. What the hell? No. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just finished reading your book and I, w- I was wondering... In the Juliet Society, the pimp is the messed up one, while the women seem really sane. Would you say that that reflects society? The pimp? Yeah. Who would the pimp be in this case? Oh, okay, Bundy. Bundy was a really fun character. I kind of want to bring him back. Yeah, but I mean, he's sort of the archetypal... What people conceive of a prostitute, that they have a really messed up background. It's Right. Yeah, and so forth. It's almost like you made him that way. Well, honestly, I wanted to make this a topical story and, and have characters that seemed realistic. And, and so a lot of the characters are just a combination of real world people. And there's a lot of guys like Bundy that exist. And a lot of them are sort of normal but just twisted dudes there's websites written and run by men dedicated to telling women what kind of breast surgery they should get and what they should do to change their face i mean that's disgusting but the truth is it exists and that's what's happening in our culture right now and more and more women are looking for validation from people like this and so you know what does that say about the women who feel they need the validation and what does that say about the men who continue to do this? It's, it's just a sort of vicious cycle that continues. And, um, and in Bundy's case, he's just taking advantage of, of young girls who want attention. And and I think 
whether you're talking about a normal young girl at a bar or a prostitute, do all these people come from damaged backgrounds and what about the guys? I think cliches exist for a reason. And so, of course, there's people that have daddy issues that come from a messed up background. But I also think that part of it's just human nature and learning through trial and error. Like I said earlier, human sexuality is a very complicated thing. And so some women at that age only know how to express themselves sexually. Or in this case, Bundy's offering free drugs. And that's just the way society is. And and so I do think there is a double standard, for sure, where women are often looked at as coming from a mess of background and the men are just looked at as like, the men are looked at as somebody who should be on a pedestal. But um, I don't think it's one sex versus the other necessarily. I heard you say that you start with the characters almost. Do you write backstories to all of them? Sometimes, yes. And that that also comes through a lot of research when I when I can find real-world people to kind of base these characters off of. That gives me the backstory. And that's why the research is so important for me. But with Catherine, a lot of that was based on me, obviously. But I wanted to give her her own, her own voice as well. How detailed is your backstory? Are there stuff about Catherine that you know about her that didn't come through? For sure, yeah. yeah, yeah. And also because I, the way Catherine is sharing her story is at a certain point in time. And just like she says at the beginning of the book, you know, I'm not going to give you my, something along the lines, I'm not going to give you my life, life history and the embarrassing baby pictures, things like that. So yeah, there's, there's things that I know about her that uh, when writing this, I knew I didn't want to give away right at the beginning. And, you know, maybe I would want to talk about later on down the line. So she was a very fleshed out character. Jack and Anna were probably the two characters that, for me, were much more mysterious and probably for the reader as well because I was sort of left with a lot of questions still and and the way they're shaped in the book. You know, I needed some characters to remain flexible and and so I can continue to mold them along the way because I I might need to reuse them or reintroduce them or get rid of them altogether. So I had to keep that um, much more flexible than some of the other characters like DeVille and, uh, and Bundy, for instance. On Varvet, might be a little bit of a strange name to you. Varvet. Yeah, thank you. We try to go way back. So tell me, what do you know about your birth? <laughs> There's not enough LSD here, man. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, what do I know about my birth? I know that minutes before I was born, my dad ran out and tried to get a Pepsi from a vending machine. And my mom was screaming at him, get in here, get in here. And um, I don't remember if he ever got the soda or not. I can't recall. I have to ask him that. I wasn't named for about two weeks. Okay. When I came home, everybody said I looked kind of strange. Nobody could figure out why. And my dad said I just kept crying and crying and crying. And after a few days, he realized she has no eyelashes. And so he said he, he lifts my eyelid and he said, I saw them just tucked under there. And I pulled them out with my thumb And they just fluttered open like a butterfly. So that's what I know about my birth. Okay. I looked like a weird alien baby. Yeah. No eyelashes <laughs> for a good week. Did they uh, expect you? Uh, well, I guess they had nine months to prepare, <clears throat> but... I was not a planned child. Actually, there's three of us and only one was planned. I'm the youngest. What did your parents do? Or what do they do? My mom works for the state. And in my early childhood, my dad was a mechanic, and now he's a meditative healer. Basically, he's retired, but he works in martial arts. Aha, uh-huh, cool. Did you do, do that as well? I did not. I did judo for a few months at like a local gym, It's like some kids' classes. Did you get to graduate? No, 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 not even. No, I just took a few classes and... Um, I think because of the type of facility it was at, it was at a gym, not an actual dojo. The kids just started coming less and less until one day I arrived and it was myself, the instructor, who was this really awesome, humongous Russian guy named Sergei, naturally, and one kid left. So it like windled down and just, 
one day it was me and one other kid and I kicked his ass and he cried. (laughs) The next week I came back and I was the only one there. So that was kind of sad, but uh, it taught me how to, how to fall correctly, which is good because it's helped me many times. I've been thinking that it would be really cool to know how to fall downstairs. It would be, especially when you want to get rid of that baby. Ha ha ha. Bad American joke. I didn't get it. There's this old joke that when girls get pregnant, they try and throw themselves downstairs uh-huh, to get okay. rid of the baby. All right. Yeah. Very vicious. <laughs> Fucked up. <laughs> that would be fun. I, I do want to... Um, there's a period a couple years ago I was supposed to be doing this film called uh, Skinny Dip. And it was an action film. And so I was training for that. They just sent me like to this personal trainer. So he kind of just did a combination of things. It wasn't a real martial arts class, but we did a little bit of boxing every day. And that was really fun, and I got in really great shape. And I would love to do that again. I'd love to do that for a role. It'd be a lot of fun. How do you stay in shape? It's been hard this past year. Traveling as much as I did and being on the road, it was almost impossible. But I have a Doberman. Yeah, and you do. so yeah. he keeps me in check. <laughs> What can you tell me about your upbringing? I grew up in Sacramento, which is like five and a half, six hours from here. It's a very different place than L.A. In what way is it different? I feel like there's more of um, an importance placed on family and community than there is in L.A. Okay. And while L.A. has a lot of great things to offer in terms of art and music and and films, you lose other things with that. So in, in Northern California, I just feel like the people... You have real friends. You have tight bonds with people. And, of course, that changes as you get older, no matter where you grow up. But um, it's a very different place. I was a tomboy. I liked to to climb trees and break windows (laughs) and get into fights. I was like a little chihuahua. You know, I thought I was a lot bigger than I was. (laughs) I was really good in school. And I think it wasn't until I was like 13 or 14... I really sort of became angry at the system and, and became a nihilist. And everything that I thought I knew about the world and education just kind of fell right in, in, in front of me and crumbled. And so I became kind of disappointed at the system and the way things were run. I grew up in a sort of disenfranchised neighborhood, so public education isn't known for being a great thing where I come from, and actually in California in general, unless you're you know public education much different than a private school. So I became really frustrated at at my surroundings. And it's probably the same time I started to kind of just disappear into film. And I started taking theater classes when I was... I started in school when I was 12. And um, yeah, that was kind of my outlet. And writing had always been an outlet for me too, since I was in sixth grade. So I was like 11, 10 or 11. I think it was in the nerdist that you you said that you were sort of a pothead. I was for a while, yeah, and I think that all came along with it. Like you, I was always so good in school, and I played everything by the book, and you know, I thought I was doing all of these things right, and I said, uh, maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm taking it too serious because my siblings were older than me. I kind of had them to look at as examples, and you know, they they went to school, they got good grades, and They got into the best college, and then they're in a huge amount of debt, and they can't even find a job because they're too overqualified for everything. But then what they're qualified for, there aren't enough positions for, and you're left with sitting on a pile of debt. And so, yeah, I, I definitely did become a pothead for a while. Yeah, <laughs> and that all it all kind of went together. But I think that's a really natural sort of evolution when you find movies and and weed when you're that age and you find something to escape in and those were my escapes for a while did you go to college for a very short period yeah very short period what was your major i was studying film film history but you dropped out yeah why it was a continuation of being disappointed i felt like because i graduated a year early from high school and my last year of high school was probably the worst for me I just, I I was looking around at everything. I said, I don't even know what I want anymore. And I always felt much older than I, than I actually was. So I think it was really hard on me and it gave me a lot of fears and anxiety. And so the last year of high school, I I said to myself, I don't even think I want to go to college because it's what I had worked for since I was, you know, 
I was like serious about that idea probably from fifth or sixth grade elementary school before middle school and high school. And I, I sort of decided maybe this isn't for me. I don't really know what I want. And I talked to my brother and he said, you know what? It's always there. You can always go if you want to. And so the last year I didn't really think it was something I was going to do. And the summer after graduating high school, I um, took a lot of time for myself and then decided, okay, well, maybe I'll go. I'll try it out and see how I feel about it. And then I, I did. And I just felt like I was back in high school all over again. And so that's when I, that's when I left. Did you want to leave Sacramento as well? Oh, definitely. I knew from the age of 13 that I wasn't going to stay there. But it's a strange thing because I'm I'm really glad I grew up there. It, it definitely made me the person I am and gave me my character and I wouldn't have it any other way. But yeah, I didn't want to be there necessarily and I sort of always knew I wouldn't stay there. How would you describe that character that Sacramento gave you? Tough, driven, determined. Because you either allow yourself to become part of the system and, and drag down into it or excel. What were your dreams back then? I saw myself in San Francisco and I sort of always wanted to own my own restaurant. That's what I thought I would be doing. And I loved theater, but I never thought I would act as a profession and for a living. At what age did you drop out of college? 17. And is this when you sort of lock into porn? Right in the middle of it. I was still in college and I started thinking about it. And then once I, I quit is when I, no, even before I quit, I just started saving up my money and I was doing a lot of research. I know that you told this before that you sort of locked in on it, but how come? Well, speaking of growing up in my history, I... Always felt like a very sexual person, but I didn't know how to express that or live that out. And my mother was Catholic, so it was very difficult to have any conversations about sex with her. And obviously, as a girl, I wasn't comfortable speaking to my dad about those things. And because of this this mindset of, of the way I was raised, I also couldn't speak to my older sister about it either because we were both very reserved in that way. And... I had very intense sexual fantasies from what I think most people consider a young age, but I think it's a very normal age. And I was never really confident with myself in that way. I didn't know that girls could be demanding sexually and ask for what they want. And I started to, once I lost my virginity, I started exploring my fantasies more. And once that Once I, I actually had sex for the first time, it really, there was this sort of unconscious weight lifted from me. And I, and I started to realize, like, what, what have I been so hung up about? And so I was finally able to start exploring some of the things that I had wanted to try and started to gain confidence and be very secure with myself and with my sexuality. And I wanted to explore that more. And I was watching porn, and I said, oh, I like it, but I still felt that there was something missing. And so I thought I, I could do it, and I, I could bring something different to it and challenge the way things were done, and at the same time live out my fantasies in a controlled environment. Because it was very, even though I had become much more confident before getting in the industry, it was still a matter of how do I find somebody to experiment with? And that was a tough thing. The type of sex I was into wasn't something that people usually talk about openly or with ease. And at that time, things like Craigslist and online hookups were very new but popular. But because they were new, they were sort of untested. And I just probably watched too many movies and thought, like, I would never try and meet somebody off the Internet. Like, I just see myself, my body thrown over a bridge into a river <laughs> That definitely wasn't an option for me. And so I, th I thought about porn and I thought, okay, maybe this is a way to experiment and test this stuff out and, and sort of challenge what I see and bring something new to it. And also encourage other people to not be ashamed of their sexuality because it's something that was very hard on me. And so I, I would like to sort of be a symbol to other people to say, like, there's nothing to be afraid of. 
And I think women should be able to have just as many rights as men when it comes to their sexuality. And that's not to say like, hey, I did porn, so you should go do porn. But it's more of a a message that goes along with it, I guess you could say. You are a super intelligent person, or you strike me as one. You knew that this would like is the stigma the right mm-hmm. word for you yeah. would that you you would sort of perhaps not always but for a very long period of time be associated with porn. Oh yeah, of course. Which is also why I told my family right away because I didn't want to hide from it, and I knew if it was something that I was going to do, I had to be in it all or nothing. And that's also the kind of person I am. When I decide to do something, I put all of my energy and, and focus into that thing. And so if I had to hide that from my family, what's the point? Because they're a huge part of who I am. Yeah, um, and they would probably find out. Yeah, exactly. And I don't want them to find out through a family friend or, or a, a family member on accident. You know, like everyone watches porn no matter how much we want to deny it. So like, what if it was one of them who saw it? <laughs> That's awkward. Yeah. So was it like a family dinner when you said mom Oh, no, no, no. Well, no, my parents are no longer together. Actually, like two weeks after I had moved to L.A., my mom and my sister were visiting. So I was like, okay, it's a perfect opportunity because I really didn't want to do it over the phone either. And um, just sort of by chance, my mom was coming down for work and my sister decided to join her. And uh, I told them then. And then told my brother and dad after that. How was the reactions? My sister was, of course, in shock, but also I don't think it really bothered her. And my mom, of course, was like, please, come home. Very probably natural reaction. She was very upset. It caused a lot of stress and conflict for a couple years, but she didn't disown me. You know, she didn't ostracize me. She was still always there for me. And then my, so the rest of my family took it okay. They just said, like, as long as you're not on drugs, And as long as you're not being forced to do this, like we'll support you and we're here for you. And please always know if you get into any trouble, we're here for you. And again, that's because the porn industry does have so much stigma surrounding it. And uh, even like a friend of a friend of a friend contacted my brother like, I did makeup in a porn movie once for a girl and there's just weird stuff that happens. So tell her to be careful. So, you know, of course, there's outside voices coming in and kind of influencing were trying to influence the way my family felt, but they were there for me, and they just they wanted to make sure I didn't become a cliche. If I look you up on Wikipedia, your birth name is going to be there. Does this rub off on your family in any way? No, but it is kind of like, I guess they sort of feel the same way I do about that, which is like a lot of performers have stage names, whether you come from the porn industry, music, film a lot of people use stage names and for me it's more of a matter of respect and the reason my name is available online is because of a disgruntled journalist actually Uh okay (laughs) which is really weird and and it comes with the territory i just i never would have thought that somebody would like reveal somebody's real name or what i felt was personal private information to the world because they were angry. You know, it was just very immature, very childish. And then just something I had to live with because I don't know how it is everywhere else around the world, but in the States, you can pay $15 and find out somebody's address if you have their name. And so for me, I just felt very, I felt personally very disrespected because now it allowed people to come in or attempt to come into my life. And, um, and that's a scary thing. People, unwanted people to come into my life, i.e. stalkers. And other than that, the, you know, how does my family feel about it? If you're asking if they feel I've like soiled the family name, absolutely not. Another strange story is I, I did an interview and this very famous journalist said, oh, you're Sasha Gray, but you're born Marina. And my mom called me after it was a huge interview. And my mom called me and she goes, what was she trying to do? <laughs> kind of funny you had the same reaction i had like what do you yeah what are you trying to do by that like yeah nobody would sit down this is a terrible example but like nobody would sit down and say something like that to sting or jay-z and i'm not comparing myself to these people but you know these are all people that use stage names like what importance does that have to the story we're telling yeah of course or the interview we're presenting so it's almost like people try and use it as a weapon sometimes which is ridiculous and also uncomfortable 
You said that uh, your family didn't want you to become a cliche, and I know that you want to tell the good stories about the porn industry as well. But did you get to see the bad bad sides as well? I honestly like. I think the first two things that people think of when they think of the porn industry are like drugs and abuse. And I never saw anybody do drugs on a set with the exception of pot. And actually when I, before I even turned 18, I quit smoking weed, but I'm not like morally opposed to it. But that was the only drug I ever saw people do on set. However, there were definitely times when I saw people high and there was no doubt about it. They were strung out of their mind. And so, yes, those things do exist. And that's why they are cliches. They do exist for a reason. And, uh, There are a couple times where I literally walked off set. It's like I, I couldn't be a part of that. Like this person can stay and you can be a part of this, but I I can't be. And that's where I sort of that's where my boundary was. That's where I drew the line. And so yeah, that did happen a few times where I saw girls so out of their minds they couldn't even keep their eyes open. Oh, wow. And that's sad, you know, but that exists I think in every industry and in every profession. I hope it's unusual among pilots. <laughs> It's not. It is. We've heard the stories. Yeah, I know. Um, but I think the the porn industry is treated in a category of its own outside of every other profession because we're talking about sex and it's something that people, most people, are still very uncomfortable speaking about. It's the one mode of entertainment that's still treated as reality, and I think that's wrong. There's a lot of preparation and things that go into making a porn scene or a porn movie. And people don't just show up and fall in love with the person they're there with. And I, I think, unfortunately, that's also what keeps the business thriving, is that people see it as reality, so they want to project themselves onto the performers. They want to project themselves into this to this world and um, these situations, which is also why people have this debate about condom laws all the time now. I don't know if that news has cycled over into Europe, but... I'm not sure either. There's new laws. I'm not that well informed because I'm not in the business anymore, but there's a law passed that mandated the use of condoms in the porn industry. And from a business standpoint, it's been proven time and time again that when you have a movie with condoms in it, it just doesn't sell uh-huh, and people okay. don't want it. But then you can get in a whole other debate like who buys porn anymore. <laughs> so uh, That's a whole other story and that would go off on a tangent. But I, I do think the porn industry is the one mode of entertainment that's treated as a reality. But Again, it's I think because we we want it to seem that way, so we can continue to vicariously live through people, through the performers. You were there for three years. Mm-hmm. Could you tell me why you left it? Yes, I'd reached a point where I wanted to start making my own films, performing and directing, and producing all my own movies, and sort of keeping it in one space, in one house. And I started a company. I found a business partner. We started this company together. And at that point, I had started to work less and less for other people. And it was, I mean, it was very obvious. It wasn't hiding that. So everybody knew like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to start my own company now. And long story short, within the span of three months, my business partner sort of decided that this isn't what he wanted to do. And um, I was left with having to make a decision. Do I want to start from scratch and find an investor, build up a new company all over again, or quit now. At that point, I was um, was making music. I was acting in traditional film and TV, and I, or getting offers for traditional film and TV. And I decided, well, I guess if there's any time to quit, this would be the time, and to move on and sort of focus and concentrate on these other opportunities that are coming my way. And uh, it's strange. I didn't. It wasn't an overnight decision. I kind of took a few months to do it and it was a very scary thing because I was at the top of my game and and so to leave something you're so familiar with was a scary thing and I didn't know like okay am I going to be successful at this am I going to be able to of course like make a living and pay my bills and and continue on and so then like five months more or less I knew like okay I've gone on five months I'm okay <laughs> I'm doing all right I started to build more confidence like okay I can I can do this and I I can make it work, and so, yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't something I ever thought like I have to announce this, because I didn't see it as like leaving something and abandoning something. I felt like okay, it's just one part of my life that 
you know, I'm, I'm turning the page, if you will. Yeah, it's yeah, one chapter of my life. It's not my entire life. And I almost think it was, a, it was a perfect time to do it because now the industry is going through so many changes and is much different than it was when I was performing in it. If we generalize a little bit, would you say that uh, there are people taking advantage of more in that business than in others? I don't think so. I think it's an idea we have about the porn industry because you're dealing with sex and money. And so, of course, there's always this idea that people are lured into the business because of quick cash. But I've lived in L.A. for eight years now, and I haven't seen many differences between, say, the porn industry and Hollywood in terms of young, willing females. <laughs> I think people often make decisions based on the attention they're getting or the the bells and whistles that are being sort of put above their head. And so, no, I don't see it as something that's a problem that's exclusive with porn at all. Yeah, it happens. Of course it happens. But I don't think it's exclusive to the porn industry. What do you think is the future of the porn industry? Books! No. <laughs> Back to where it started. Yeah. It's funny because even though we're, we still struggle with accepting the industry and it still does carry a lot of stigma, it's kind of cool to be a porn star these days. And I think that's awesome. I think, I think that's a good thing to, uh, you know, to allow people to see the positive side of it because we're so used to hearing the negative dark side because it's the thing that sells. But it's become a part of our culture. It's become a part of pop culture. And so I think there's less stigma now than there ever has been. People aren't as afraid of that stigma that comes along with it. So how will that continue? I'm not sure. I think, um, I don't know. I, I mean, we all think about this a lot. Like I, was, I joked earlier, who even buys it anymore? Because it's out there for free, but somebody does. Or else you wouldn't be able to pay the performers. You wouldn't be able to hire a cameraman. How about this? In the future, everybody will be a porn star for 15 minutes. <laughs> Thank you, Walhall. I think we're at that point right now. We are? Kind of feels like it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking that if people film themselves with uh, iPhone cameras, uh, etc., and put it online. Yeah, it's becoming more and more of a popular thing to do, definitely. There's websites dedicated to that. If you had an, an enormous amount of money, would you consider going back into the in industry as a director? Or? Not in any traditional sense. This company I had started, I wanted to make video erotic video art if I could label it the genre. That's what I was interested in doing because I still think there's a lot of things, interesting things we can do with sexuality. I still haven't seen Nymphomaniac, damn it. But, um, Me neither. No? no? Really? Yeah, I need to see that. But um, I still think there's a lot to be done on film that hasn't been done in terms of human sexuality. But uh, if I were to go back into it, it would probably be where I left off and where I quit. So that definitely wouldn't be in a traditional sense. It's not something that you would see on a clip on the internet for five minutes. I guess you get this a lot, but would you say that, I mean, my perception of the porn industry is that it's a man's world. Are there female executives and directors and so forth? A lot of directors, yes. Okay. Executives, not as many, no. So on the, on the outside, the business is dominated by the female performers by the stars, but on the inside who, you know, who runs these companies. Yeah. A lot of them are men, but it is a man's world. Yeah. Born or not. Yeah. Are you a feminist? I don't consider myself a feminist. Why not? I think it's become a overused watered down term. And there's so many different sub genres of feminism. So I guess if I was a feminist, I'd be a postmodern feminist <laughs> in that way. And I know a lot of people like to, refer to me as a feminist and that's okay if if you need a label to define something i just think i stand for self-empowerment and, and positive human sexuality and positive female sexuality because yes it was very important for me to say early on in my porn career that women can like dirty sex it can like kinky sex and it doesn't mean that we were abused it doesn't mean we come from a dark place it just means that We're human beings too, and, and we should be able to live out our fantasies without being labeled a slut. And yet, here we are in 2014, and we still are. 
There's mm. still websites dedicated to this kind of stuff for that target normal women. Do you get a lot of hate? I kind of I'm kind of good at ignoring the gossip and I guess that's what it is at the end of the day. You know, I um people don't really say much to my face and who would? It's the power of anonymity. That's the power of the internet mm. as a tool. And so yeah, it's there and I see it sometimes when I'm scrolling on Instagram posting a new photo, but at the end of the day, um I'd say it's 50/50. People love to hate you. <laughs> Well, no matter what profession. When I've read your like Facebook page and so forth, people are, I would say that it's 90 to 10, perhaps 95, 5. 95. Love. Oh. oh, I don't know. Actually, Facebook is a thing I probably shouldn't admit this, but I probably look at the least. I just sort of post on there. I'm still frustrated at the mobile interface. <laughs> so I don't, um, I don't go there for a lot of feedback necessarily, which... Maybe if I like get my website together and start posting more original content, then I would because I would want a real, I would want real feedback from the fans and what they think about certain things. But at this point, it's more of a tool to kind of communicate and interact and and keep fans up to date with what I'm doing. Do you think that you will you always be associated with porn? I think in a way, yeah, of course. It's where I began my adulthood it's where i blossomed it's it's you know i became a woman during those years so yeah i i, I don't really mind standing for a, the positive side of the industry and and showing that women can be strong and diverse if you will but it's also not what defines me i guess you could say personally yeah do you have any acting roles planned? There's a film called Open Windows, directed by a Spanish filmmaker, Nacho Vigalondo. It stars myself and Elijah Wood. So that comes out later this year. I'm going to Spain in at the end of June for the premiere. So Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's exciting. What are your goals and dreams now? I think they change every day with my imagination <laughs> some days. I would love to continue writing. I um, was very humbled. And excited that so many people loved my book, especially after struggling for so long to try and realize a screenplay. And so it's taken sort of a funny turn in that way, but um, I'm very happy for that. So hopefully because of this, people might be interested in, in a film down the line. I know at some point I would like to probably crowdfund a film. I would like to continue making music and writing and taking photos and doing it all i i think the ultimate like goal there isn't just one i just i feel lucky enough to be able to have this book to kind of support the other interests that i have like making new music nobody's paying me to do that you know so i'm i'm really lucky that i i have that ability right now i'd like to continue traveling I've traveled so much and last year i was really tired and exhausted but then now that i've been home for a few months i'm like I'm ready to go again. I want to get back out and see the world and continue traveling and exploring and, and taking photographs and live in two places and maybe one day have a kid. I don't know. We'll see. Would you like to recommend something? I just saw this interesting film called Under the Skin and I think people should go see that. I was very excited that a film like that was actually in theaters. Going into it, I thought it would be much more of a, of a regular narrative. But it was more like an art piece. It was really beautiful. The sound was amazing. And it's cool to see Scarlett Johansson play like a very understated role. I found it beautiful. The sound, the sound design was amazing. Who would you like me to interview in Varvet International? He's at Cannes right now with a new film. Jean-Luc Godard. Ah, okay. Of course. Yeah, he's at Cannes now. Thank or you. no, I lied. You can interview the filmmaker I just worked with, Nacho Vigalondo. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Yes, of course. Thank you. I was so nervous meeting Sasha Gray because somewhere in the research it said that uh, she doesn't like small talk and looking people in their eye when she enters a room and so forth. None of that was true, however. She was a joy to meet and I hope to see her again sometime. And listener, I would like to see you again as well. Next week, I'm back with James Fry. 
I know that he's controversial, especially in the US, but he has meant a super lot to me. I think you'll understand why in just uh, one week, 3rd of uh, September. And this episode of Varvet is sponsored by Airbnb.com. Be sure to check that out. It's a fantastic website. And uh, editor was uh, Lovisa Olson, producer Christina Jörling Biro, and my name is Christopher Triumph. Be sure to follow Varvet on Twitter and uh, Instagram. It's Varvet Pod in one word. Talk to you soon. Bye bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, ninety-six percent replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a thirty-night guarantee. Plus, get fifteen percent off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.